You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio, 89.7 WGLS-FM. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, We're thrilled to be able to host this talk by Dr. Shepard. Before I introduce our speaker, I just want to thank the sponsors who helped make this event possible. The co-organizers of Rowan's National Girls and Women's in Sports Day events, the Rick Edelman College of Communication and Creative Arts, the Department of Radio, TV, and Film, the Center for Social Justice, Inclusion, and Conflict Conflict Resolution, and the Women's and Gender Studies Program. And a special thanks to Professor Harmon for hosting us in her class today. After Dr. Shepard's talk, we'll have some time for Q&A, at which point you can drop your questions in the chat or you can unmute yourself. So without further ado, I'm so happy to be joined today by our very accomplished guest speaker, Dr. Samantha N. Shepard. She's an associate professor of cinema and media studies in the Department of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell University. She's the author of Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on Screen from the University of California Press in 2020. She's the editor of From Media to Media Mogul, Theorizing Tyler Perry from the University Press of Mississippi in 2016, and Sporting Realities, Critical Readings on the Sports Documentary from the University of Nebraska Press in 2020. She's published extensively on film, media, and sports in academic and popular venues such as Film Quarterly, The Atlantic, Flash Art International, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. And she was named to the very illustrious post of being a 2021 Academy Film Scholar by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So thank you so much to Dr. Shepard for being here today. Her talk is titled, A Kind of Resilience Only Appropriate Only for Those Who Exist in Celluloid, Black Women Athletes Contested Sporting Imaginary. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here, and especially for Professors Montgomery and Professor um, Harmon for inviting me to be in this conversation with you all. Even virtually, I deeply appreciate it. Um, So I'm going to talk to you about my work that engages the intersections of gender representation and sports on screen. I'm going to share my screen. I recognize this is not the best version of doing all of these things, meaning that um, we all like to be in person. So I've tried to make, um, I just kind of overdid it in the PowerPoint. Um, you know, just like, just so if, if it feels like, is she trying to make a movie? Kinda, um, but so I'm just gonna give you <laughs> aesthetics um, and throw some substance in there. So um, I'm gonna share my screen now. So like I said, The talk I'm giving today is titled, A Kind of Resilience Appropriate Only for Those Who Exist in Celluloid, Black Women Athletes Contested Sporting Imaginary. Now, the title actually comes from poet Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen, an American Lyric, a work that details the episodic transgressions, microaggressions, and violence that are endemic to Black people's everyday experiences. Among other topics covered in the book of poetry and essays, Rankin reflects on tennis icon Serena Williams on the court experiences. Throughout both Serena and her sister Venus's sporting career, both women have been subject to an ambivalent reception in the white and wealthy sporting world of tennis. This ambivalence, one that ranges from celebration to condemnation, is in part because of their athletic dominance, but also because of their blackness. It is in part because of um, their blackness that I use this term sporting blackness to describe how narratives about race and sports become embodied by black athletes. Now their public treatment as Nicole Fleetwood argues, uncovers a serious divide in how race, gender, and physical prowess are perceived by Black fans of the sisters and the majority of white sports journalists and tennis fans who critique them. Now this divide underscores for Rankin the invocation of Zorona Hurston's words to describe Serena Williams' experience. And you can see those words here on screen in this Glenn Ligon art piece that captures the phrase, I feel most colored when I'm thrown against a sharp white background. What Rankin is highlighting is how Williams' sporting blackness is magnified in historically exclusive white sports such as tennis. 
As game changers, both Williams sisters' bodies, in fact, were cast against the sharp white background of the sport as anomalous, not quite right and not quite white for women's tennis. And in turn, their presence and dominance altered expectations and set new standards for sports in general. In fact, and this is quoting from Nicole Fleetwood, Williams' style of playing tennis her grunting, the musculature of her body, and her clothing produce affective responses that play into polarized discourses, where such choices are embraced by many of her Black and progressive fans, while questioned by, normative, by the normative American public as markers of the Black figure's unwillingness or even inability to conform to American and European conventions of sporting femininity and social cues. I begin what will be a talk about, well, not Serena per se, but actually sports films and black women's representation with Williams because Rankin's description of the tennis superstar's strength and dignity on the court in the face of individual and institutional adversity is quite generative. In fact, it's a really great way to approach my topic of looking at race, gender, and sports media. Rankin says that Williams has a kind of resilience appropriate only for those who exist in celluloid. That phrase opens up a conversation about those who do exist in celluloid, specifically Black women athletes contested sporting imaginary on screen. So today I'm going to talk to you about ideas in films from a chapter in my book, Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on Screen, that focuses on Black women's representation in sports films. To give you a quick overview of my book, though certainly feel free to pick up a copy, don't stop yourself. My book considers issues of race and representation in contemporary sports films. In the book, and as you'll see during this talk, I look closely at sports films and examine what it means to embody, perform, play out, and contest ideas of social identity by representations of Black athletes on screen. Now, as a genre, sports films blur cinematic and social worlds drawing on real sports history to construct themselves as part of a recognizable reality. They are often melodramatic, utopic, and conservative tales that affirm ideas of meritocracy, where the heroic individual, who is often white and often male, overcomes obstacles and achieves success through determination, self-reliance, and hard work. Today, drawing on the third chapter in my book, I'll be addressing the critical absences of Black women in sports films, as well as the measure of gender, an example of Black women sporting Blackness on screen. In general, there are actually very few um, sports films about Black women athletes, and women overall are usually regulated to subordinate roles as wives, mothers, or cheerleaders within the genre's stayed gender codes. In my work, I enact a Black feminist analysis to explain how Black women's visible sporting bodies on screen are a formal challenge to a genre predicated on their invisibility. So let's dive deeper into what I mean by this. The tweet you see here is from director Matthew A. Cherry, which opens up the chapter on Black women's representation in sports films. It reads, Imagine a League of Their Own sequel that starts with the scene of the Black woman throwing the ball back from the stands and you stay with her and it becomes a biopic on the three Black women that played in the Negro Leagues. Tony Stone, Mammy Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. Let's hold that idea for a second and I want to draw our attention to this reference scene in Penny Marshall's 1992 film, A League of Their Own. But for those who do not know, the critically acclaimed A League of Their Own is actually the highest grossing baseball movie to date. The film fictionalizes the history of the All-American Girls Baseball League, a women's professional bas excuse me, not basketball, baseball organization that existed from 1943 to 1954 and was founded by chewing gum mogul Philip K. Wrigley as a wartime surrogate for men's professional baseball as he was concerned that men's absence from the major leagues would, be would have irreversible damage on national interest in the sport. And while the film memorializes the AAGB, AABGL hmm, history, a, a league of their own also captures the prohibition of Black women from the league. 
In doing so, Marshall's film confronts the double exclusion of Black women because of their race and gender in sports history, subtly and powerfully critiquing the gender equity narrative the film celebrates. In fact, Black women appear in only one brief scene in League of Their Own, specifically during that montage that illustrates the league's rise in popularity, seen here in a second and referenced, of course, in that aforementioned tweet. This brief scene of sideline Black female athletic prowess is a mere 13 seconds long in a film that runs 128 minutes. While minimal in time, the scope of this moment is significant to understanding Black women's representation, or really lack thereof, in sports films, especially during the 1990s. Like the ball flung by the Black woman, this scene could have easily been tossed out of the film by Marshall, bearing no narrative necessity to the feminist tale about women's neglected sports history. And in fact, and this is in praise of Marshall, this deliberate inclusion then is telling and far-reaching in its impact despite its duration in part because of how it scripts the Black female sporting body into the world of white women's athletic empowerment as a critique of the league's racial apartheid. At the margins of the baseball field, as you can see on screen, the Black woman, who goes both unnamed and uncredited in the film, surfaces within and outside the bounds of dominant sports history, and her presence in athleticism paradoxically addressed the absence of her body and subjectivity within AAGBL history and the sports film genre more broadly. The unnamed Black woman stands out within the all-white narrative about sports equity. But she also stands in for a history of discrimination by the league against Black female athletes. As sports historian Susan Kahn explains, the AAGBL also had an unwritten policy against hiring women of color, though it did employ several light-skinned Cuban players. Not until 1951, five years after the integration of professional men's baseball, did the league openly discuss hiring Black women torn between the need for skilled players and a desire to promote a particular image of femininity, officials decided against recruiting African-Americans unless they would show promise of exceptional ability. This decision and the fact that no Black players were ever recruited reflects the pervasive racism in American society during the 1940s and 1950s. So what I'm getting at here is the fact that Black women's presence in the film surfaces an absent history of Black female athleticism. In fact, the unnamed Black woman's sporting performance, alongside the two other Black women standing near the sidelines, reify Black female athletes positioning at the periphery, but also yield inspired versions of historical bodies of Black women baseball players, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mammy Peanut Johnson, referenced in the tweet I showed you earlier. Stone, Morgan, and Johnson were African-American women who, after being turned away by the AAGBL, played baseball for the Negro Leagues for three seasons. And look, the fact is, with a minuscule number of fictional films about Black women athletes, a 13-second scene in a league of their own, particularly at the time in the 1990s, becomes oddly foundational to our understanding of Black female visibility and invisibility in sports films. So keeping this in mind, Let's think about gender, race, and sports films a bit more broadly before I turn to a specific film that in some way challenges conventions around sports, race, gender, and representation, and that being love and basketball. And I'm not going to lie to you all. I was, when I wrote the date down for this film, I thought 2000, wait, this movie came out yesterday, right? I realized it's older than you probably. I, my mind is blown, and also at the same time, it really feels very fresh, so... Oops. Nonetheless, as I've said, representations of Black female athletes in sports films are scant, a consequence of women's contested place in sports history and our sporting imaginary in general. Instead of being foregrounded as athletes in sports narratives, they are typically, like the Black women in a league of their own, sidelined as non-athletes. Black women, specifically in sports films, exist as minor characters, wives, mothers, sometimes cheerleaders, if not just generally absent at all. Their peripheral treatment is not fortuitously occurring at the margins, as Stuart Hall notes of marginalized Black experiences, but placed, positioned at the margins as a consequence of a set of specific political and cultural practices. The relative void of films about Black sportswomen has created a deliberate, if not defining, absence within sports cinema. 
Now, this is despite the dominance and celebrity of Black female athletes, from Althea Gibson to Florence Griffith Joyner to Cheryl Swoops. Black women are almost never the subject of biopics, the most common sports film subgenre, which generally privileges stories of heroic white males with a subset of stories about legendary Black male athletes. This exclusionary pattern of the cinematic Black female athlete has structured the denial, the rendering, and the effacement of Black women athletes on screen. And in fact, in sports films, Black women's marginalization occurs in ways in which their bodies, sporting or otherwise, are paradoxically made invisible and visible in the genre. And again, I, that's why I really highlight that a league of their own scene. The lack of sports films about Black women reflects the broader marginalization of all women athletes in the genre. As I've said, women are situated in sports narratives as the wife, the mother, the daughter, the sister, the groupie, supportive, unsupportive, constructive, destructive forces for usually male and particularly white male self-definition. Women's positioning at the margins of sports film narratives, however, is a consequence of the idea of sports itself as a masculinist site, one that has shaped women's historical struggles to participate as subjects and agents within this arena. Sports for centuries have been thought to be the domain of men, where mastery, dominance, aggression, control, pleasure, and power are expressions and affirmations of masculinity. And as Daniel B. Daniels explains, quote, sport and masculinity become entwined to the point that the normative characteristics of a masculine male and the normative characteristics of an athlete are nearly identical, end quote. So in other words, to be an athlete is to be a man. And as you may already know, historically, women were actively discouraged from athletic involvement. It was thought that women could only succeed by sacrificing what was seen as their natural femininity for masculine qualities of body and mind. These concerns over women's bodies, particularly their reproductive capabilities and sexuality, were not applicable to all women's bodies. Instead, they were wielded to protect the alleged superiority and desirability of white people as central to the leadership and development of American society. Black women, as sports historian Susan Kahn has argued, were viewed through these gendered and racial prejudices. And she says, quote, African-American women's achievements in a mannish sport also reinforced disparaging stereotypes of black women as less womanly or feminine than white women. Non-white, indigenous, and immigrant physical labor, sporting or otherwise, were ignored, misshaping historical records and collective memories about women of color athletes during this time. And the gendering and racializing of sport has engendered incorrect beliefs about histories of games and sports and the invisibility of girls and women as participants and have created the foundation of myths upon which the contemporary culture of sports and the construction of masculinity has been built. Now, sports cinema and its gendered and racialized regimes of representation have imported crystallized and projected these myths, justifying sports narratives exclusions of black women on the basis of quote unquote historical realism. In other words, black women athletes cannot appear in films about sports history they were not a part of because that would sacrifice the film's claim to veracity. Unlike A League of Their Own, these films do not embed the histories of racial segregation into their narratives. Sports films, however, take much license with sports history, changing events, games, participants, and facts to serve narrative and emotional beats, often seeming unconcerned with historical accuracy in favor of cultural resonance, which is why the absence of Black women is still quite telling. Now, Black women, Black sportswomen in particular, despite their game-changing records, are a structuring absence of the sports film genre. Therefore, despite the hyper-visibility and achievement of a few Black women athletes in sports visual culture, sports films rarely recognize these exceptional female athletes in sports history at all. In sports cinema more generally, stories of white female athletes make up only a small segment of the sports film genre. When women athletes are sports film protagonists, they are often represented within specific narrative constraints and often alongside and in relationship to men. Within sports films narrative economy and generic constraints, black women's bodies exist, as I've said before, but sometimes they're hardly sporting. In fact, they're cast as negligent mothers in films like The Blind Side, um, baby mamas and conservative tales like Coach Carter, as love interest in male-centered biopics, such as um, Glory Road, or doting and steadfast wives, as seen in 42. 
when black female athletes are given cinematic treatment. And I know what you're thinking. It seems like a lot of films. You said there weren't that many. I have seen bazillions of sports films. If I can put it on a slide, it's <laughs> not that many. Um, these films adhere to sports film and television's generic conventions, especially since they are principally made for television biopics. Um, in fact, the lack of representation of black female athletes is wholly unearned. U.S. black athletes, particularly U.S. black women athletes, have historically achieved international celebrity and success in the panoply of sporting games, including basketball, tennis, track and field, gymnastics, etc. And to my knowledge, there actually is only over a few dozen fiction films about black women athletes to date. I'm talking about fiction films, not documentary, which is slightly different, though there's a lot less of those two. I'm not going to list all of them here, but if you want the receipts, trust me, I got them. Now, I want to draw our attention for just like the reminder, the remainder of our my conversation here to one of these films that explicitly engages some of the issues around Black women's contested sporting image on screen, and that is Gina Prince-Bythewood's 2000 film Love and Basketball, a romantic sports melodrama about a tough-nosed Black female baller who attempts to navigate her love of basketball and her desire for the basketball-loving boy next door. As you can tell, this movie came out when I was 14. I was dying. I was living. It had a grip on me. Now, as I talk about this film, I specifically want to point out how the film imagines Black women sporting bodies in ways that contest fixed ideas and ideals about gender, and particularly gender norms. Gina Prince Bythewood's Love and Basketball is broken up into four quarters, of course, keeping with basketball's temporal structure, with the narrative spanning 15 years of the protagonist's lives and the growing relationship between two neighborhood basketball players, Monica Wright, played by Sanaa Lathan, and Quincy, or Q, McCall, played by Omar Epps. Love and Basketball entwines elements of Black love stories and the woman's film into a woman's sports film. As Gina O'Reilly explains, quote, in the women's sports film, gender conflict is the biggest issue, and female protagonists must struggle to simply defend their desire to play sports, to be mannish in the dominant male society. The very fact of playing sports thus provides the main social and sexual transgression and the melodramatic plot structure that many of these films adopt." End quote. Now, Love and Basketball incorporates these melodramatic plot structures, invoking anxieties around expressions of racialized femininity and masculinity on the court through the female protagonist, quote unquote, you know, playing like a man. In the film, Monica's sporting performance on the court illuminates the tensions around discourses of masculinity and femininity in sports. Despite how others gender her performance, Monica pugnaciously identifies herself as just a ball player. It seems in order to retain her athleticism, Monica must disavow femininity altogether. However, her claims to a neutral sporting identity, one easily inhabited by men and therefore considered a normative masculine ideal, is an attempt to denaturalize gender and gender segregated sports. Monica's surly insurgence in the film nonetheless leads to difficulties for her in both love and career. And when Quincy tells her that her bad attitude, meaning her aggressive and masculine behavior on the court, is why she's not getting recruited, this is what Monica says. No one's going to recruit you. Please. You jump in some guy's face, you, you talk smack, and you get a, a pat on your ass. But because I'm a female, I get told to calm down and act like a lady. I'm a ball player. Okay? Or as he said, the ball player with a jacked up attitude. But still, as you see, Monica is aware of and disgusted by the gendered politics that code her sporting performance, um, as well as the black middle-class respectability of ladylike behavior that constrains her. Her reply to being told to tone it down the court signals how women in sports are physically hemmed in by these gender expect expectations regarding style of play, and particularly black women as well. Monica's indignation at such a request qualitatively contests gendered fields of play questioning, as Jennifer Doyle suggests, what is it we are looking for in a woman's game? Surely not a confirmation of the femininity of the people on the pitch or court. It must be something else, like how the women's game allows us to escape narrow ideas about who and what women are. In the end, Monica's insistence on being considered a ball player and nothing more 
at least on the court, is an attempt to script herself and her comportment through a new lens by which the pictures of femininity and masculinity blur and fade, to accept herself outside of a gender sporting binary, as well as the stereotypes of racial troping. Monica's sporting body creates a fluid subjectivity, where being and becoming are put into motion and contest. Monica's athleticism, her aggression and dominant play are what makes her a gifted basketball player, evidenced obviously in the block that she makes. However, as you saw, she's given a technical foul for her lack of sportswoman-like behavior, conduct that is much more prevalent and tolerated in men's basketball. And here, her playing like a man signals not only the limits of women's athletic gender expression and the conditioned experiences of femininity and masculinity, but also the way in which her play is read as excessive for a girl. And in both games, Monica's sporting body signifies how women, particularly Black women's visibility on the court, can bring wreck to the idea of who gets to embody being an athlete. Gwendolyn D. Poe describes the hip-hop modality and rhetorical practices of bringing wreck as moments when Black women's discourse disrupt dominant masculine discourses, break into the public sphere, and in some way impact or influence the United States imaginary. And in the first scene, the juxtaposition of the court and MC lights light as a rock, visually and orally disrupt dominant masculine sporting discourses in the framing of sports as a male domain. She becomes, as you see, the sum of her parts. We see her shoes, we see a necklace, we see the scar on her face. Um, and the scene becomes visually and sonically defiant, female and aggressive. And in the second game scene, Monica's point of view privileges her sporting agency, which we often don't get to see. In fact, in the final moments of the game, Monica is in her flow. She's actually light as a rock. She's shutting out the noise of the arena. She is fully concentrated on the moment. And while the game does not end in her team's favor, Monica's virtuoso sporting performance in the film is one of mastery over body and mind, where her internal narration details and designs her stratagem. And that's a kind of a really key point. So many times in so many of these films, particularly that privileged women and so few that even privileged black women um, show like the forces of the coach being the thing that drives um, um, black female athleticism. And it's really great to see in this film that it comes from inside of her, like telling herself what to do, um, showing her, you know, motivating herself that you get to hear that. So this dramatic focus on interiority reimagines the contours of Monica's embodied agency. It is not merely an ex imposed exterior, but a self-stylization from the inside out that uh, instructs, improvises, and enacts new ways or new moves um, for being on the court. Now, the film's representation of Black female athletes makes visible issues of race and gender in sports and popular culture, and particularly because unlike um, stereotypes around Black women athletes that playing sports makes them more hyper-masculinized, etc., um, this film is a romance. Um, so there's a, there's a need to quote-unquote end a problem, uh, which we could talk about, um, to temper the kinds of um, athleticism with a love narrative. And so while the film challenges gendered sporting conventions, it also kind of capitulates to the film's romantic plot line. That's the whole one-on-one, -on -one, I'll play you for your heart thing. Um, and I'm gonna, I'll spare, I'll, I won't spoil it. I'll tell, I won't tell you if she wins. I mean, you've had, you don't haven't had 22 years, but you've had like, you know, your whole life to watch it, but like, um, okay, I'll spoil it. Um, she loses, but he says double or nothing and they get together, it works out. Um, and I say this not to disavow the interesting ways the film makes visible Black sportswomen, but also to show how contested these images themselves can be, because the film itself really ends with Monica, who finally does get to play in, um, and professionally in the WNBA, as her husband, Q, um, is sitting with her child. She gets to have it all. Um, and so these films themselves can have these kind of really contradictory and at the same time neatly wrapped up narratives around gender. And in the end, I wanted to highlight this film because it demonstrates the kinds of resilience, meaning the flexibility in terms of representational politics that Black female athletes who exist in celluloid um, often experience. And while Black women still remain largely marginalized in sports film narratives, films such as Love and Basketball attempt to make visible Black women athletes contested place in sports, society, and our cultural imaginary. So, 
Thank you so much. I'm going to stop sharing my screen um, and I look forward to any questions that you may have. Thank you so much for your wonderful talk. Um, so I'm sure people will have questions. Uh, you can either raise your hand. Um, I don't know if there is a hand raising thing. I'm also not that familiar with WebEx. Uh, you can unmute yourself and uh, ask your question or you can put it in the chat. Yeah, go ahead. My name is Mark Bernard. Uh, you picked a great, great movie, Love and Basketball. I've seen that movie so many times. I can never get tired of it. Like, soon as I saw you put the picture, I'm like, yeah, she's playing my movie right here. This movie right here, like, I read, like, I read, like, the way the referee was going at her, I feel like it was wrong. I feel like, yeah, in a game, you are going to play with your emotions. You're playing for something that you want to win and you want to conquer at. So when the referee gave her a technical foul, I'm like, what do you expect? Like she's playing, she like she's playing her hardest. Like of course you don't give her all. She's putting emotion to it, and then you're giving her a technical foul. You're calling foul calls on her. That's like bogus. Everybody hates referees. The referees don't know what you're talking about. And also like the whole point of the movie was that like she her goal like she didn't want to get the respect that she wanted to like as a ball player. As a ball player, she want to be seen like oh I can I can handle myself with the guys. Don't just see me as, oh, I'm a woman. I, I can handle myself. Because she also, like you said in the ending, she played with Q for his heart. She gave him a little hard time. Because Q had to take his, his uh, knee brace off. And so he's like, okay, now I, I got to put my, I got I to get, I go hard now. Because you, 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 you're beating my butt right now. But what I'm saying is that I'm glad you picked this movie. Because the movie read the hit on everything you said. So I'm glad you picked my favorite movie. Oh, that's, that's so kind. I mean, I think it's. Even the reason why I was so shocked when I realized the age of the film and perhaps also the age of you all um, is because um, even in the, the time and distance between this, there hasn't been that, that many large treatments um, um, about black women athletes, despite, you know, we're just getting King Richard, which is it's really about Richard, um, mm. not about the Williams sisters. Um, but prior to that, despite Simone Biles and Gabby Douglas, you know, winning these big Olympic medals, they get filmed, but they get these lifetime movies, and it's a, it, they're just totally very different. Yeah. Um, and so this film is still a standout in terms of the representation of a complex representation of of a black woman athlete who's trying to deal with her own individualism, um, who wants to be the best at what she can be, who's dealing with gender issues, with race issues, and um, and with again this concept of what it means to quote unquote be able to have it all so i think the fact that you you've watched this movie so many times and you enjoy it still shows how both it's a really good film but also just its import to the genre um that really has a lack of representation i also gotta say that i feel like the mom just couldn't really understand her the dad understood where she was coming from but the mom just just couldn't understand because she always because the mom always seen her always wearing like like she was dressed like a tomboy and but the dad still knew that art like in her head it's still my daughter like come on like still my daughter she's but my mom couldn't see that mom couldn't stand her always dressing like a guy wearing guy clothes not wearing dresses while the dad still was like art she's a ball player but she's still like a girl like she's still like girls things but she's a ball player she's focusing on ball like that doesn't mean oh that's not your daughter no more like that's still your daughter but she's loving basketball like she loved the game yeah, I think you really bring up a great point because these films are also trying to navigate. It's trying to put pressure on, and that's why I say it's a contesting. I really like that word because, like, you can see the tension. It wants to push on gender ideals and gender norms, and she's saying, I'm a ball player. Don't see me as a woman. Don't see me as a person. You can go onto the court and do skills. But at the same time, the film is deeply invested in a romantic, heterosexual narrative. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so right. it's really about also reifying. She's a ball player, but don't worry. She's going to have a family. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not going to push too, too hard. And so that's why we want to keep that tension alive about how we think about this as a progressive film, but also as a film that has um, that has some limitations. I think this really speaks to a question that I'm seeing in the chat here from Harley, which is, why do you think so many female sports films include love? Do you think it's because they need to hide an athletic woman behind a man or a romantic relationship? And it strikes me that what you were saying about a lot of these movies being lifetime movies sort of dovetails with that in terms of like assumed audience. Yeah, I mean, part of these films, and thank you so much, Harley, because that's a really great question. And look, I love a good romance. It's my favorite genre. I'll, I'll, I'll stay in a romantic narrative. But I think so many sports films, I'm talking not just like 
sports films about black female athletes, but are just about men. They really are. Even even the ones that are early, early sports films from like the 1950s, um, Pat and Mike, starring Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Oh my goodness. It is about their love and they're so cute. Like it's, it's it does things to me. But, um, but I think there is so much caught up in probably the things that you're learning in your class, which is about how we understand women's relationship to sports. Right, so that there's this long history of not wanting women to be able to participate, about controlling, um, controlling women's bodies, and so you know this sort of larger patriarchal forces um, that shape how we even see the relationship to sports. And then we think, okay, well, who's going to go see this film? Oh, we want to watch Jerry Maguire. We want to watch Any Given Sunday. Who's if you? But we want to get women to go see a sports film that stars women. Well, we better put. Paul Bettany across from Kristen Dunst in Wimbledon. And I'm going to watch it. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to watch it. But we feel like we need that, not we, um, um, I would say sort of um, the Hollywood machine um, is trying to figure out, oh, women, women need romance. They don't really want love. We know that to not be true. Like Title IX shows, the participation of women in sports shows us all we want to do is play. We want to see ourselves play. We want to go do that. And if we could just have films that were about that play, about that triumph, that about, I mean, we should have, we should have so many films about women in college sports. It should be, it should be huge. Instead, we just get the glory roads, the Friday night lights, as if, as if those are the most important tales um, about equality. And I'm not saying we don't need stories about integration um, and stories about um, hard fought gains to, to, to bring a certain kind of racial equality. But when you look at racial equality and if all the met, if all the black people are met, <laughs> then we have to ask ourselves a certain question. Um, why is there no film about UConn? Why is there no film about Maya Moore? Why is there no film that's not just a fictional treatment about Cheryl Swoops? Um, why did, not to go on a little bit of a baby tangent, but I think you'll let me go there and appreciate it. Um, look, I sat there and sat through the last dance like a lot of us because it was the pandemic and somehow they caught us inside and we couldn't get out. But that was a thousand hours. And what did they give the Lady Trojans? The Lady Trojans that produced Cheryl Mel and... <laughs> like, the Lady Trojans got an hour, barely. And it's like, that's the more interesting history. Um, or that's as equally, if not to me, more interesting of a history. So I think that love becomes a way that people think they can take potable sports, but we know this to not be true um, because of the rampant interest of sports by women and girls um, in popular culture. You did briefly mention King Richard. Um, I, I would love to hear more about that just because so, so I love Serena. She's one of my all-time favorite athletes. But I think it's interesting when you look at, you know, ESPN did a 30 for 30 on Venus versus when she was fighting for equal pay in Wimbledon. And then HBO did that five-part series on Serena. But, you know, where is our 10-part Serena and Venus story? And I do think it's 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 not surprising. It's, it's expected that the first time we see them in, in a film is, oh, it's about their dad. And I, I would just love to kind of hear you expand a little bit more on that. That's a really, really great question. And again, thank you so much for inviting me into your class um, and to, to have to hold this space um, with you all because I too, I live for Serena. I I mean, just have me waking up at 2 a.m. because the time changes, wherever she may, just in balls of nerves. But in certain ways, at first I was like, oh no, they're making King Richard. And I was like, okay, he's like one of the greatest coaches to ever exist. Like what he did with like, it's, and, and also an absolutely, unwell person at the same time um and so i think with serena the reason why even as i'm like oh i want more films and i would you know more biopics or just even more imagined tales about black sportswomen um is serena so in control of her image watching that serena hbo doc was deeply painful at times because I thought you can't be yourself. Like you, you've lost the plot. Like you, she, she just can't be. She's so hyper aware that she's always looked at that. It's like, there was a moment, I think she was taking like a prom like picture with um, Mr. Reddit. And I was just like, this is, cannot be how you all are like in real life. Um, and I think that there's, there's a way in which 
the control that would be that she would have over her narrative as a person who would tell her story alive would get us one version of a story, which is why I appreciate her doing being Serena. Um, I appreciate following her on Instagram, but I look forward to seeing someone else take a treatment on her life. Um, and also in relationship to Venus. Um, I'm very happy that with Venus versus, as you pointed out with that 30 for 30, it was done by Ava DuVernay. And so I think that it had a very particular also kind of focus and attention um, that I thought was really careful about about their narrative. I mean, King Richard is, is that's just a Will Smith vehicle and I'm, and I'm really in, I'm I'm glad that it's that it exists and i know one day we will have the serena i just it just hurt me so quickly that lifetime made those gabby douglas and simone biles stories um and i get why they did it um just an industrial turn um, lifetime has turned to black women programming so they started creating all of these made for television movies to target black women audiences and they're very they're very popular they did it with the Aaliyah story they did it with the tlc story we just saw it obviously with the janet jackson doc um and so the fact that they would make those films very quickly after they won is very key i mean it's, it's great and look regina king was in one of them she was in the gabby douglas story um but they're terrible <laughs> and and they're all just like so pro-america and it's like i'm, I'm not saying you can't I, I am i'm saying you know you, you, you don't nobody love gabby Douglas doesn't even love the sport anymore she what the sport has done to her what the history of the abuse is but if she is not mm, you follow her on TikTok, it's a hard thing um so so i just wish there would have been more more of that kind of thoughtful treatment but again that happens not just with black women sports um, um athletes it happens with women athletes really in general um some of the the greats have still not you know gotten these sort of depictions um, and we are obsessed, of course, with just recreating Jackie Robinson biopics, which is fine, but because um, I love Shabba Bozeman, but it's, we're just obsessed with a certain kind of black narrative. Let's I had see. also written down King Richard as my first question. <laughs> Why not Queen Serena or Queens Venus and Serena? Um, we have another question in the chat from Sue Hyla. She says, I wish there were more movies based off women in color and sports women of color in sports. I have a daughter who loves football, but women's football has been sexualized. What can we do to change the perspective and or narrative of this? That's such a great, that's a great question. I mean, when I think about the only other sports film about a black woman in football is The Long Shot starring the great Kiki Palmer. Um, and uh, the other movies that deal with women in sports are things like Necessary Roughness. I say women sort of attached to male teams, um, Little Giants, which I also love, not gonna lie, but Little Icebox. Um, but again, it's all, she's like trying, she's, you know, become the cheerleader that she's like, no, I can't do this. Um, I think to change this perspective and in, in sort of the narrative, I mean, in, in certain ways it requires um, the large sort of stakeholders to invest in, in women's stories. And we, we just see that that doesn't happen in a large scale sense. Um, and every time the media has this sort of amnesia, like when the World Cup or the Olympics are sort of the highest rated, oh, we can't believe this, or oh my goodness. And then, and then there's no coverage after that. Um, and so I think it's, it's largely about needing, needing or needing to become those people in charge um, to do that, um, as well as really just still encouraging, um, encouraging young um, men, women, boys, girls, non-binary folk to still play, still, still like let their lives be a movie. I think there's also democratization that happens with the change of me changing of media. I watch a lot of stuff that isn't going to be a movie, but can certainly be a TikTok. Um, and so I think it's really, really important to just continue to see, um, to see people go out and ball out. Like, we'd love to see it. Have to go see you soon. Be sure to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. Actually, I'll be tuning in to TCM to see more Black History programming. But I will check out. Um, I will check out the score um, to see. I wish I wish both teams the best. That's just a media spectacle. Like some sports are played, but really, <laughs> it is lights, lights, camera. Yeah, I encourage you all to watch TCM's programming for Black History Month, month which is excellent. Dr. Shepard was just on on Sunday introducing several films. 
It was a wonderful conversation that she had with um, Professor Jacqueline Stewart, so highly recommend it. Um, I had another question, which is now escaping me. Oh, you mentioned TikTok, and I was thinking about that because I feel like where I see sort of a high degree of visibility for black women's sporting bodies is on TikTok now, especially with gymnastics and especially that incorporate music and dance in ways that seem to me to often be very culturally specific. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. That's a great question. I mean, so much of what I know, and I will, and I, I love sports. I've written this book on sports, but, and I consider myself invested in sports media, and I have played sports, and I all of that was a lot of love. But really, what I'm trying to say is, I'm really ambivalent about sports um, and, and about their function and form. Um, but I am deeply appreciative of those who really invest. Um, their teaching, their time, their research into sports studies and sports history, because I learned so much. And I was working with a scholar um, who's out of UPenn, but right now who's at UT Austin, Amira Rose Davis, to talk about black gymnastics and the history of black gymnastics, uh, the history of black gymnastics um, and going really before again, like how, like what is the entire history of, and you know, she's brilliant. I just talked about the Lifetime movie, um, but she, she gave us the entire history, but it, but she asked same similar question about well what do we think about TikTok? what do you think about all these sort of ucla um, routines going viral to single ladies the one that just hit a perfect 10 to lizzo um and sort of the sort of confluence of a particular kind of um, um black musicality and and physicality in these performances that are sort of giving this kind of particular attention to um black female athletes and particularly to black gymnasts in a way that um obviously the doors that Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles opened up changed our understanding. And then we see, okay, yeah, UCLA has all these little black young gymnasts. Wait, oh, she, that girl's on Ellen dancing, doing, doing a little single ladies thing. Um, so I think it's really, really interesting. I mean, I say this also with a caveat that we all know that UCLA right now is currently in the news because of racism. Like, that's the tension. It's like, wow, they love you, but like they also hate you. And so it's a celebration and the condemnation, that, that, that tension again um, between the two. Um, so, and I, then I was thinking about LSU um, and the dance team and how they didn't get funding and then they come back and they perform. And the way I even learned about them was through TikTok. You know, and I tried to do the little dance. It was like, duh, 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 and I was like, oh, nope, <laughs> get my age limit. But, um, but there's something also about um, the ways in which sort of they're using social media to, to kind of break into conversations about equity and about awareness um, and, hopping on the fact that we we really do like these little one minute, two minute sound bites. Can you do the LSU challenge? You know, that kind of thing. And I think there's, I think there's something there. Um, something there that, that'll, that'll be interesting to see how, how that shifts or how that maps or graphs on to, um, to women's sports overall in the next five, 10 years. Absolutely. I also have to give a shout out to Dominic Dawes, who was my favorite gymnast when yes! I was a kid. I really I cut those bangs. Oh, <laughs> well, I had the bangs. same ones. <laughs> I love the conversation that she had when she interviewed Gabby Douglas to see mm -hmm. this sort of intergenerational exchange and how kind of Dominic Dawes walked so that Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles could run, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm now forgetting her name because the second I learned it, I, I instantly forgot it. The gymnast who came before them. There's there's an interesting genealogy that happened to Gabby Douglas that also got left off um, because one of the provocations of that documentary, of that podcast um, examining the, the history of the Black gymnast is in the attention around Simone Biles, particularly her choosing to, to not participate in the Olympics. Um, what that... Um, how she became divorced from narratives of Gabby Douglas and how Gabby does like we actually stopped talking about her. If anybody's like, where is Gabby? Like, who is Gabby? When we talk about, oh, the greatest, you know, and she just kind of became, so there's an interesting sort of break in the genealogy. And then there was a tour that was happening with, with, um, with the gymnasts going around and it became this whole thing about mental health and all this sort of stuff and, um, and trying to think about the relationship between the past and the present. So I love that Dominique Dawes did that with Gabby Douglas. I see that Simone Biles doing that with these younger, um, these younger gymnasts, particularly these younger black gymnasts who are kind of, who are, who are not going to go to the Olympics, but are certainly having these huge 
these sort of large careers and learning to how do we, you know, how do we take this and what's her name? I can't remember her name right now, but um, homegirl who did the single ladies routine, you know, was at the Met Gala. Like, the when did the college pipeline go to Met Gala? Like, I went home. Like, I did not get to go to the Met Gala. I don't know how we made it here. But um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's really interesting. I will say, and this isn't a question that's being asked, but I sometimes will give, um, think about this this um, area and I'll say, oh, well, what's the next film about black women athletes that's coming out? And I'll just sit there and be like, I don't even know. <laughs> like, and I, that's, you know, we can think about what other movies, particularly about white men or black men, what TV shows are gonna, you know, all American privilege, you know, Bel Air is gonna have a real, the crossover, Spring Hill Entertainment, LeBron's company is gonna do all this stuff. And I'll just sit there and I'll be like, what movie? Nothing? Okay. Well, there was that movie that came out on Netflix, First Match Wrestling from 2018. Okay. Okay. I mean, cheer, I guess. And that's got a lot of issues. And are, are there really black? I mean, they were kind of in the second in the bring it on, cheer too, bring it on. But that's that's about it. Um, so I think that's something you all want to think about. Ask yourself, if you were to try to go to the movies in the next year or two, or and by movies, I mean, please stream us at home on HBO Max, um, is what would, what could you possibly see? Do we have other questions from the group? Oh, uh, I got one question. Me, I'm, hope, I'm hoping for another female basketball movie to come out, to be honest. That's what I'm waiting for. Or it don't have to just be basketball. It's like another good movie I can, like, be like, all right, I can watch this again. Or then in the future, I have my own kid or I have a daughter. I can say, all right, it can be like inspiration for her to like get more in sports and stuff like that. So that's why I'm, I'm hoping for more. They push out more female athlete movies out. Because like there's, because me, I watch a lot. Y'all, y'all probably think that, oh, I'm young, but I shouldn't know about that much about old movies. But I, I watch sure. a lot. <laughs> you can be surprised. I watch a lot of movies. Because like me, I, I like watching the movies from the past, like Above the Rim, Coach Carter. All those type of movies, I, Glory Road. I seen all these movies. Like they all touched me, and this, and I love, and I love basketball as like ball is life. And I watch, I watch, I don't just watch guy basketball. I watch girl basketball too. So hopefully they, they push out more female sports for them in the movie theaters in the future. Yeah, I agree. I hope so too. I hope we see more fictionalizations because fiction films are different than documentaries and we see more documentaries like Garrett Bradley, the director, um, has um, a multi-part documentary on um, Naomi Osaka um, that's on Netflix. Um, that's really interesting. Um, and uh, um, so in terms of genre, um, documentary has some very interesting interesting work and I, and I would encourage sort of looking at those because those are still very highly constructed narratives around around um, around gender sports um, and, and sometimes um, sometimes race. Um, but but yeah, I, I too look forward. I mean, it'll 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 certainly be so it'll certainly be interesting and i love that the past is is above the rim like i realize how i have gotten old i realize this i now i <laughs> it has occurred to me like i said the past they're gonna say personal best and i was like yeah that was a little while ago <laughs> um but but yeah no i want to encourage you all to, to 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 keep watching um to to keep critically thinking about those images um, and, and what's actually um, being put in motion in contests on screen besides the games themselves. Okay, we have time for one more question. We have another one from the group. If not, I have one, but I, I wanna give other people the opportunity. <laughs> I don't have a question. I just want to thank you for your time. Um, you definitely uh, mentioned some inter interesting perspectives um, with women in sports in the film industry. And I can certainly agree with Mark. That is one of my favorite movies. Um, and I love how it gave the surprising twist in the end where it was about her and not him. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to thank you again for speaking to us. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for your attention. Thank you to everyone out there for for your focus. Like I said, it's not it's difficult to to be virtual and it's difficult to listen to someone talk virtually to you. Um, but I appreciate your attention and your engagement this entire time. Not you. It's not difficult to listen to. Not you. me, of course. Obviously, not <laughs> star treatment gives star power. But others, those other people who will be coming, they're thankful. <laughs> yes. If there aren't other questions, I'm, I would love to hear your thoughts on bring it on, which I saw you had in a slide, um, because I think it's, it's one of the, it, it articulates the tensions over race in cheer, and it makes it an explicit part of the narrative, even though I think it then gets subsumed by the love story. But I think it's interesting that it highlights that and then the sequels take it in a different direction. Um, I know we're talking about a lot of these sports movies where it involves sports that are coded as feminine, which is what makes love and basketball so different in some ways. Um, but I, I would love to talk about Bring It On if you have yes, thoughts. No, we, I guess been my whole life talking about this film. And honestly, the sequels too. Um, and it wouldn't be enough time. Um, I think it's actually, it's it's interesting. When people bring it up, they're surprised I didn't bring it up in the in the book. It's like in a footnote, actually. Um, in part because I don't consider it a black sports film. I consider it a sports film, but not a black one because the narrative economy of the Rancho Toros takes up the entire film. Gabby, um, and look at me, Gabby, like calling her like we're old friends. Gabrielle Union um, confirmed recently on TikTok that I knew when I had seen the trailer, there were all these scenes in the trailer. And I was like, where are those moments? Because there were scenes of like, a, her like with a guy and like all these like like either in a lot I was like when did they go to their school and the fact that they she confirmed that that was just shot extra because they thought they really loved <laughs> and said okay this is a white woman's sports film that's fine still very interesting uh, certainly a great um film to teach cultural appropriation the sheer fact that cheer basically copies the narrative beats in its construction to be like bring it on to the rival school right down the street that actually has like a really diverse um team and has uh, a coach of color uh, a black male coach um that's happening and obviously the issues swirling around um, Navarro is, 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 it's just a really interesting sort of import um, decades later for this film. The thing that, only thing that bothers me about Bring It On, when people watch it, they're like, oh, you see, they're so, they're so good, Burr, it's cold in here. Um, sorry, I almost thought about doing the whole cheer and I thought, you all don't want this, time's almost up on this class. Um, sure. People do want some, some, <laughs> said, I'm not going to. Here, uh, for, <laughs> next time, next time in my sequel, and when you bring me back for the encore, I got it. Um, but the thing about the film is that what I find so problematic, and actually, it's a thing I I I don't mind about cheer. Narratively, we are so with Rancho um, the entire time that when they do get second place, they make second place feel like first. <laughs> You are, you're like, okay, yes, technically there's, but, and so I was like, that, it's a thing, it's like, even when we, and now I'm taking collective we, speaking for black people, which don't do, that just, just, I'm just pretending, but we, we can't even win straight out, like, we, the win doesn't even feel like a full win, we are like, look at them, they came from the bottom, started at the bottom, now they're here, look at the two, <laughs> they could have almost won this if they would have had a few more weeks. Like, and there's something about this film that is so deeply invested in whiteness, figuring it itself out. That is what makes it actually really insidious, even though it's super fun, super funny. Shout out to Kristen Dunst. It's it's a great, great work. And I think it has a lot of cultural cachet and always feels, of all the films, Bring It On and To Me, Love and Basketball are the ones that travel well and have traveled well through time. Nobody likes Monica in real life. Nobody likes who? Monica. Monica, that's also I'm I'm getting that feel. I, I was there. I was like, what is? First of all, the show is filled with villains. People don't even know they're villains. Just talking. <laughs> I was like, maybe right. the villain. But um, Bonte yeah. is way more clear to like in real life and in the show and everything. Oh my goodness, I feel like we could have had a second part about cheer because I had just I had a, whew, I it was a lot. It was difficult, and I <laughs> yes. Oh, so many things, so many thoughts. But that's my time. <laughs> 144 over 145 class. Volunteer. 
Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's so true of Bring It On, that it's the white team losing graciously is the real win, mm -hmm. right? Like that's that's what's actually prized above black talent. Um, thank you so much for your talk today and for your time with questions. Um, it's been so wonderful to have you and we would love to have you back if you're willing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for this invitation. Thank you all. Hope you all do enjoy the Super Bowl and TCM and all the other things you could do um, this weekend. Thank you, um, Professor Harmon, for inviting me. Thank you to Professor Montgomery for 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 and facilitating the invitation and the conversations and following up and being actually really really great host. I would have loved to have been in person because I feel like the hospitality would have just been because everything Next else would have been great. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much.